Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Mohsen Milani, professor at the University of South Florida and one of the leading American experts and scholars on Iran. Before we bring in Mosin, let me share just a few of my thoughts on some of the latest news from Syria as the Biden administration reviews and perhaps resets its policies there. No surprise that Russia brokered the deal this month for both the Syrian government and the primarily Kurdish Syrian Democratic Forces to de-escalate recent skirmishes in Northeast Syria. The SDF, you may recall, was the U.S. partner in this successful campaign to defeat ISIS in Syria. Those Kurdish groups which make up the backbone of the SDF are considered terrorists by Turkey and are the primary targets of Turkey's military campaign in Syria. This has forced the SDF into an on-again, off-again dialogue and coordination with the Syrian government, and that broke down and flared up this year before the Russian mediation, which is already breaking down. Russian President Vladimir Putin prefers that the SDF be pressured militarily and isolated politically because this allows him to position himself as the channel for a deal to increase or lower the heat on the Kurds as needed. Putin's endgame has always been to broker an understanding between Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his Syrian counterpart Bashar al-Assad for the Kurdish region to eventually come under the control of the Syrian government. Back in January of last year, Putin facilitated a meeting in Moscow between Turkish intelligence chief Hakan Fidan and his Syrian counterpart Ali Mamluk. If Putin were to get traction on a Syrian-Turkish channel, still a reach given the bad blood between Assad and Erdogan, Putin needs to keep the Kurds off balance, the United States to be less engaged, and for U.S.-Turkish relations to remain troubled over differences on the Kurds and other issues. I also wanted to quickly mention here the collapse of the latest round of the drafting commission of the Syrian Constitutional Committee in Geneva. That meeting ended on January 29th. Now, at the end of the session, UN Special Envoy for Syria, Geir Peterson, declared his disappointment to the commission members and the press, saying, and I'm quoting, we can't continue like this. Of course, Assad and the so-called Astana Trio, that's Russia, Turkey, and Iran, are all fine with the commission's session to sessions, I should say, to continue like this, that is indefinitely and with little or no progress. And this was the Astana Trio's intent going into these meetings. Peterson, however, appears to be drawing a line and like the Syrian Kurds, probably could use an assist from Washington to stand up to the pressure from Moscow, Ankara, Tehran, and Damascus. 
You can follow our monitor's coverage of Syria, including our amazing on-the-ground correspondence in Idlib and Aleppo and elsewhere, and also in our Week in Review column. Now let's turn to our guest today. Mohsen Milani is Executive Director of the Center for Strategic and Diplomatic Studies and a Professor of Politics at the University of South Florida. He has been a fellow at Oxford and Harvard. His book, The Making of Iran's Islamic Revolution, has been used as required reading in many universities in the US, Europe, Japan, Canada, and Iran. He is one of the very best analysts of Iranian politics. He's writing a new book about the nature, evolution, and consequences of Iran's regional policies in the context of the U.S.-Iran geostrategic competition. My conversation with Dr. Mohsen Milani begins now. Mohsen, welcome to On the Middle East. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Andrew, for your inv invitation. I've had a chance to listen to some of your podcasts, and I have to tell you, you have done a fantastic job, and I am truly honored uh, uh, to join you uh, this afternoon. Thank you, Mohsen. You're a good friend and a great scholar, and it's our pleasure to have you here today to talk about Iran. Uh, let's get into it. In the last few days, U.S. President Joe Biden has said that Iran must return to compliance with the JCPOA by reducing uranium enrichment to levels to those outlined in the nuclear deal. Ayatollah Khamenei has said that Iran is not going to take the first step. The U.S. must lift sanctions before Iran returns to the deal. And his remarks are what he said, the definitive and irreversible policy of the Islamic Republic. And we need to add one more thing. The International Atomic Energy Agency has said in the last few days that Iran has increased cascade activity at sensitive sites. Are we at a standoff? If you had to game it out right now, do you think the JCPOA will be revived? And Iran is coming off three straight years of negative economic growth, mostly because of U.S. sanctions, but also in the last year because of COVID. Is that not incentive for Iran to be proactive diplomatically? Um, I think in a way it is, and in a way it is not. Uh, let me first make it very clear that uh, as far as I know, and as far as uh, I have been able to read the official uh, reaction in Iran, uh, the Islamic Republic is ready to uh, negotiate with the US, but uh, uh, they have their own demands. And mm -hmm. the demands, as you correctly said, is that the US should first return to JCPOA and understand that uh, President Trump's unilateral withdrawal from the nuclear deal has damaged the Iranian economy illegally in their mind and that it has prevented uh, Iran from access to medical uh, equipment and medicine during a devastating COVID pandemic. And therefore, they say that the U.S. must first return to JCPOA, and then Iran is going to implement uh, all its obligations. So it is sort of compliance for compliance. So the question is uh, sequencing. Who is going to go first? 
I think it is very, very important to understand the environment in Iran today, uh, the political environment in Iran. And one of the most important, uh, I think, developments in the past uh, uh, three years is that what little confidence there was about the reliability of US as a negotiating partner, it has evaporated in Iran. It has evaporated for two reasons. Number one, the US's unilateral decision to get out of a uh, legal uh, and binding uh, document, the JCPOA. And the secondly was the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. I think people underestimate the importance of these two events and why Iran has become even less uh, uh, willing to take a risk with the US. Having said all of this, Ayatollah Khamenei's position is very clear. This is the way he operates. He does not want to negotiate from a position of weakness. If you go back, for example, to the uprising in Syria in the first or second year of that uprising, when everybody was talking about Assad Moscow, when everybody was more or less celebrating the downfall of Assad, Ayatollah Khamenei, Ayatollah Khamenei refused to accept this and asked Assad to become even tougher. This is exactly his strategy today. He is trying to go back to at least to the pre-withdrawal uh, of the US from the JCPOA in terms of Iranian nuclear program, in terms of Iranian uh, activities in the region, which I'm pretty sure we'll talk about this later. So in, in domestically, if you look at what Iran has done, they have relied on new generations of centrifuges. They have started enriching uranium at 20%. They have built uranium metal for reactor fuel. And uh, they have continued and in fact accelerated their missile testing. All of this uh, shows to me that the, uh, that the uh, uh, strategic patience as the overall strategy of the Islamic Republic has changed and they're now trying to have as much leverage as they can before they enter into negotiation with the U.S. about uh, reviving the nuclear deal. I am at this time, despite everything that Ayatollah Khamenei has said, despite everything that uh, President Biden has said, I am cautiously optimistic for the simple reason that I think both countries are now trying to increase their leverage, but both countries have come to the conclusion, and I believe it is the right conclusion, that uh, having a nuclear agreement serves the national interests of both countries. Most and both sides are saying, you go first. And there is, at least for now, a seeming standoff in need of some creative choreography to get the talks moving. One option might be deferring to the EU, as Foreign Minister Zarif seemed to imply last week. Another approach may include some positive signaling. For example, the IMF is reviewing a request from Iran for a $6 billion loan. And this loan can only go through if the U.S. gives a green light to the IMF. 
how do you see the potential for some creative diplomacy, signaling, choreography to build confidence and break the deadlock? Uh, you're absolutely right about the IMF uh, announcement that they are uh, proceeding with uh, uh, studying Iranian requests for, I think, five or six billion dollars to deal with the uh, COVID pandemic. And that, you're again correct, would not have happened without the U.S. approval. So that is, is a, uh, I think, a major confidence building <clears throat> Uh, uh, gesture by the U.S. and I hope Iran also uh, reciprocate and makes a small gesture toward the U.S. This is what we have to do. Uh, we've had 40, 42 years of animosity, uh, or as your old professor, Professor Ramizani, used to say, we've had a long period of demonization right. of both countries. Uh, in order to put an end to this, or, or at least in order to diminish the degree of this animosity, we have to make uh, step, uh, baby steps. And uh, the IMF decision, I think, is a welcome one. Uh, as to Europe, uh, clearly, President Trump, uh, President Biden's entire Iran strategy is to work with the European allies. And, uh, uh, and Iran also has welcomed this uh, as long as, as long as, Europe understands that Iran is not going to, at least this is their opening position, is not going to renegotiate this nuclear deal. They went through four years of secret and uh, open negotiations, and they produce a, uh, a thick document, and they're not going to renegotiate it. But I believe they might be willing to, if, if the U.S. Is, uh, rejoins the five plus one, four plus one now, and makes it five plus one, I think there might be some willingness on the part of Iran to, to revise or to negotiate some uh, sunset uh, clause of, of that provision and, uh, and use the uh, uh, revival of uh, JCPOA as a, as a step toward negotiation for other important uh, issues that are of concern to both the United States, Europe, and Iran. Let's talk a little more about the Iranian domestic political situation. Iran has an election in June. President Rouhani is at the end of his second term. He won't be running again. The Iran nuclear deal was his signature foreign policy achievement, but as you mentioned earlier, the political and popular reaction to the deal based on trust in the United States seemed to have soured greatly after the Trump administration withdrew from the deal in May 2018 as Rouhani took the blame. Is there a narrow or even closing window for Rouhani to do something in the next few months, given that Iran is entering an election season? And what do you expect in the coming election and what it means for the prospects of reviving a, a cur the current deal or a new nuclear deal, which you alluded to? Well, uh, two parts to your question. First about Rouhani. Uh, yes, there is a possibility that uh, uh, progress can be made in the rest of his tenure. Uh, the Iranian election is in June, so we have a few months. But if that means that 
his com uh, domestic competitors and rivals are to be undermined, I don't think it's going to happen. So the challenge for the U.S. is in case we are moving toward negotiations, is to make sure that somehow it doesn't get itself involved in the uh, presidential elections and in that uh, power rivalry among different factions. That is, I think, the key. As to uh, the presidential election itself and what it means for the U.S., Andrew, I have been saying this for uh, three years now, at least since President Trump withdrew, even before he withdrew from uh, uh, the JCPOA, that Ayatollah Khamenei has decided that it is time to homogenize the elite. That is, it is time to have one faction, the hardline factions, uh, control not only uh, the government, but also the Nizam or the, uh, the Islamic order. Uh, as you know, right now, uh, the judiciary and the uh, legislative branches are controlled by the hardliners and uh, the uh, presidency, the executive branch is controlled more or less by moderates. And please understand when I say moderate, I'm pretty sure some of your uh, listeners are gonna freak out and how, how can he say moderate? I'm talking about Iranian context. Every, uh, I'm not talking about using liberal democracy uh, standards. I'm talking about Iranian standards. Um, I believe uh, that the, the determination is at this time to make sure that we have a hardliner uh, elected as the next president. And this way, uh, it will have two great advantages for Ayatollah Khamenei and uh, his supporters. Number one, it will allow them to negotiate more seriously with the U.S., not fearing that the moderates or others are going to uh, negotiate with the U.S. and then, in case they win, use that to undermine the hardliners. That is a very important consideration. They want to be able to negotiate from position of strength. As I said earlier, that's the, the overall approach Ayatollah Khamenei has toward negotiation. But there is also uh, another important element, and that is, as you know, Ayatollah Khamenei is about 82 years old. He seems to be in good health, but uh, his succession has become a major uh, political concern in Iran. And every move that uh, different factions make in Iran, they have their eyes on who is going to replace Ayatollah Khamenei when he dies. And now, if you put those together, the question of succession to Ayatollah Khamenei and the question of who is going to get credit for negotiating with the US, you'll understand why I said for the past three years, the trend in Iran is toward homogenization of the elite. That is an elite that is controlled by the pro-Khamenei uh, hardliners. Let me ask a further question on the succession issue um, to Khamenei. Would you see this as a potentially destabilizing event in Iran? And who are the contenders to succeed in? Andrew, I, I think a great deal has been said uh, about the succession process. And much of it has been based on speculation. Uh, we have heard of a few names, uh, one of them, 
that uh, has been mentioned recently is the son of Ayatollah Khamenei. There are others, uh, Ayatollah Raisi, and a whole bunch of others. Frankly, uh, I, th- I, I don't take any of those seriously yet because we don't know the condition uh, uh, under which Ayatollah Khamenei is going to die. When he dies is extremely important. What I do know are two very important uh, points about the succession process. Number one is that there is an institutional mechanism for a peaceful transition of power in Iran. You might like it or you might dislike it. It doesn't matter. What matters is that there is a mechanism. And we saw that that mechanism could actually work very effectively and relatively speaking peacefully when when Ayatollah Khomeini died. And I remember in those days, you probably remember it too, uh, the speculation was that Iran could even experience a civil war. but uh, the transition was rather smooth and peaceful. That's point number one. The second point is that there is a fundamental difference between Iran of 1989, when Ayatollah Khomeini died, and Iran of 2021. And the difference, I am talking about succession, is that the uh, Iran, uh, that the Revolutionary Guards, IRGC, is much more powerful today, will have much more influence in determining who the next Supreme Leader is than in 2009, uh, to, uh, in, in, in uh, uh, 1989 when Khomeini died. Uh, so these are, two major points about the succession, uh, that there is a peaceful uh, process for transition, institutional process, it's constitutional. And that system has had one, at least one experience before. And number two, that expect the Revolutionary Guards to play a major, if not the major role in the selection of the next Supreme Leader. And what about in terms of the presidency and the parliament? Who are the politicians to watch in the upcoming elections and then Iranian politics more broadly? Well, we know that Mr. Ghalibov, uh, the speaker of uh, Iranian parliament, is interested. Uh, uh, We know that uh, uh, a number of other IRGC officers are interested, so much so that uh, the talk in Iran today is that we need to have a military government. We need to have a, uh, a, a, a sort of reincarnation of the late Reza Shah, the founder of uh, the Pahlavi dynasty and in many ways the founder of modern Iran, uh, who was a military man who ruled for uh, less than a decade but he was uh, a tough man and, and, and had an iron will, and he did a lot for the country. And they think that uh, there is too much corruption in Iran today, too much internal bickering, and therefore we need somebody with a military background or perhaps even from the military itself that can, uh, that can bring order and stability uh, back to Iran. So 
we have a lot of candidates from uh, either former IRGC officers or who are active today. And we have a few other candidates. Uh, again, uh, remember one thing, these are all speculations and I don't wanna get into it because ultimately they have to submit their credentials uh, to the Guardian Council and many of them could be disqualified. So I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I thought that the late uh, Hashimi Rafsanjani had a pretty good chance to win. Uh, he submitted his application to the uh, Guardian Council and the Guardian Council rejected him. Uh, and then we ended up having uh, another candidate. So it is going to be very difficult. All I can say is that I think at this time, the chances of somebody from uh, 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 IRGC who could be the next president is, is uh, quite high. Wilson, you mentioned earlier that perhaps if there were steps towards uh, re-entering the nuclear deal, there, there could possibly be discussions of uh, a new deal or a different type of deal. Let me put one idea that's been uh, offered uh, U.S. Uh, Senators uh, Lindsey Graham and uh, Robert Menendez, Menendez now the new chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, have legislation that allows for civil nuclear cooperation with Iran if Iran gives up domestic uranium enrichment, like the Emirates has done in its nuclear agreement with the United States. And previous guests on this show, including Ambassador Ron Dermer of Israel, the former Israeli ambassador here in Washington, and Ambassador Yusuf El Ataiba, a UAE's ambassador, both said that their countries would welcome an agreement with Iran that's about zero enrichment. Is this a non-starter in Iran? Zero it enrichment? It, it is. It is a non-starter. Uh, and... Uh, those who are talking about this must understand that that was the U.S. position uh, during the uh, Bush 43 administration. Didn't go anywhere. And if you think that a regime in Iran today, any, uh, any kind of regime can come, and after all these years of suffering under severe economic sanctions to accept zero in enrichment, then, uh, then uh, I think you're uh, delusional. It, I don't think it's going to happen. And I think if it does happen, they are then really talking about the regime change in Iran. That is, we're gonna have a regime that is going to be fundamentally different than what we have today. This regime, as it stands, is not going to accept that. I don't, I, uh, I am pretty sure about that. Iran is also dealing with a new regional landscape that's uh, changed a great bit over the last four years, including in particular, Israel's normalization agreements with the UAE and Bahrain. Uh, in addition, the Biden administration has already said it expects more consultations with regional partners about Iran, not just about this new and improved nuclear deal to deal with missiles and timelines, but also perhaps over time about regional security. Uh, Iran has talked about regional security for years. It has its own proposal for Persian Gulf security. Russia has a proposal out there. 
Kuwait, Qatar, and Oman all have maintained channels with Iran and could play a key role. And the UAE has talked about the need for diplomacy with Iran. Is Iran ready and willing for a regional dialogue, perhaps under UN auspices or some other institutional mechanism, international mechanism, I should say? Uh, it all depends on uh, where we are with the uh, nuclear negotiations. Uh, I want to make sure that uh, I did not misspoke. I did not talk about a new nuclear deal with, uh, uh, with the U.S. Uh, I was talking about uh, protecting and perhaps making some changes in JCPOA. Right. So uh, I wanna make sure that we understand that. Regarding uh, uh, the role of the regional players, uh, I think Iran has made it very clear that they're not going to accept anyone else getting involved in uh, Iran's nuclear program because uh, they say that we have already uh, negotiated a nuclear deal with five plus one, we don't need to add anything to it. Now, the US, of course, as a superpower, is uh, uh, free to consult with its allies. I don't think Iran is going to mind this. Uh, they don't have the right to mind this, and they don't have the power to prevent the US from consultation. But uh, having Saudi Arabia and Israel on a negotiating table, I don't think it's going to happen. And by the way, it's going to be quite dangerous uh, for Israel, because once they get involved in direct negotiations, then its own nuclear programs uh, is going to be on the table. So I don't think this is serious. I think President Biden is a wise man and is an experienced, seasoned uh, diplomat, a politician, statesman. And he knows that in order to be able to revive the nuclear deal, he has to have some uh, sort of uh, uh, agreement from America's major allies in the, in the region, including Saudi Arabia and Israel and the United Arab Emirates. Regarding regional security, if we have a good deal, uh, if, we have, if we can revive uh, uh, the GC, uh, JCPOA, which has been in the ICU for three years, if we can get it out of the uh, hospital completely and revive it, uh, anything is possible. But Iranian position at this time is that they're willing to negotiate directly with all regional powers, but they don't wanna get the US or the Europe involved. Again, these are uh, initial negotiating positions and they're subject to change. Uh, I think, uh, and, and I have written about this, Andrew, and I'm working on it, uh, I think Iran has to uh, make some major changes in its regional policies. Not so much because the US wants Iran uh, to make those changes, although that's an important factor, but because their current uh, regional policies are not sustainable in the long term. They are not sustainable in the long term. And, and therefore, uh, if we can have a nuclear deal, then I think Iran is much more willing uh, to start negotiating about its regional policies or perhaps, perhaps even about its uh, missile uh, technology and uh, missile program. 
let's get into some of these regional issues in our remaining time. How does uh, Iran see Iraq and what type of changes do you think are possible there? Is, is Iran willing to step back from its control of some of the hardline popular mobilization units like uh, Qatab, Hezbollah, uh, as well as Iran's influence in Iraqi politics and economics and business? Unlikely in the short run, and when I say short run, unlikely until we know the fate of JCPOA. Um, if you look at Iran's regional uh, uh, posture at this time, uh, Iran is, has become a uh, significant power in, in uh, Iraq and uh, definitely in Lebanon, and to some extent in uh, uh, Syria. Now, in terms of importance, uh, and, and of course, Yemen, uh, the way I look at this is that if we are willing to, if we want to make, uh, to incentivize Iran to change its regional policies, we got to start negotiating with them, not from the areas that they think uh, uh, serves their top national security concerns. Now, Iraq is a top national security concerns. I think Iran might even be less willing to negotiate about Iraq than it is about Syria. Both Lebanon and Iraq are Iran's top national security priorities. Uh, now, the one country where I think uh, would be a good place to start a regional dialogue, regional negotiations, would be in Yemen. Because in Yemen, Iran doesn't have uh, and they're very op uh, open about it. They don't have uh, uh, national security, great deal of national interest in, in Yemen. I think they're basically supporting the Houthis in order to undermine the Saudis, in order to uh, send a signal to the Saudis that uh, we, we are pretty close to you. Don't put too much pressure on us. I think if we can agree on uh, that country, and I think there, I have already seen some moves by the United Nations that, uh, and some ex really positive steps by the Biden administration, including uh, not selling arms or at least for a while to the Saudis and to the UAE and uh, de not declaring the Houthis as a terrorist organization, which means that the Biden administration is interested in diplomacy. If we can agree on somehow uh, agree on Yemen and the future of Yemen, then I think it's going to be much easier to talk about Iraq and Syria and, uh, and, and Lebanon. Remember, just a few days ago, uh, there are reports that ISIS uh, has uh, flown its flag uh, in an area very close to the Iranian uh, borders. And so Iran really is uh, concerned about uh, uh, the situation in Iraq and is unwilling at this time uh, to give up its leverages, uh, not even knowing what's going to happen to the nuclear negotiations uh, and not knowing whether these sanctions are going to be lifted or not. Mohsen, you may recall we met uh, 33 years ago at an international conference in Iran. As I like to say, I think we were both high school students at the time. Uh, is the I wasn't even born. 
Is uh, the Iranian government stronger or weaker today than at that time? That's the year Ayatollah Khomeini died. And his, has it been, it's clearly been weakened by the sanctions economically. And is discontent growing, receding, or is that just a constant in Iran? Um, excellent question. And uh, of course, you remember that trip because you went there. I don't because I wasn't born. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I remember the, uh, I have read about that period. Look, in terms of whether Iran is in a weaker position or a stronger position, I think regionally Iran is in a stronger position. There is no question about this, that the, uh, uh, the invasion of Iraq uh, opened up uh, the road for, uh, opened up the path for expansion of Iranian influence. Uh, and uh, in those days, uh, when Ayatollah Khomeini, di Khomeini died, Iran wasn't a major power uh, at all in none of those countries, uh, except perhaps in Lebanon. And even there, Hezbollah wasn't an established uh, political uh, organization, uh, whereas today it has become uh, the major player in Lebanon. So regionally, I think they are in a better position, but they have paid a heavy price for that. Uh, uh, and 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 uh, one of the price, one of the prices they have paid for it is uh, these sanctions that have uh, this uh, undermined Iranian economy uh, beyond imagination. I. Uh, and I have to add that um, not only Iran is having these economic problems, politically too, uh, there are two or three major problems I see in Iran. Number one is that the governing elite in Iran, uh, and what I mean by governing elite, I mean the groups or the factions that come from, that, that, uh, that made up the elite, that has shrunk significantly. Uh, the fact that, uh, Mr. Musabi and Karubi are still under house arrest, means that a significant part of the elite uh, has been marginalized. The fact that uh, Hashimi Rafsanjani was marginalized before he died uh, shows that uh, that uh, governing elite is shrinking. Also, I don't think the Islamic Republic is, has the kind of popular base of support today that it had 20, uh, 30 years ago. There too, it has shrunk. As a matter of fact, I think there is significant, significant uh, discontent in Iran about the policies of the Islamic Republic, political as well as economic. So in that regard, they are, they are much weaker. But here is the important point to remember about Iran and about any country where there is pervasive discontent. It is one thing to have popular discontent. It is one thing to say people are unhappy or dissatisfied with, with the regime. And it is quite another to arrive at the conclusion that they can organize themselves and overthrow that regime. In other words, the, the, the path from popular discontent to mobilization and then to regime change there are, the road is quite, quite long. And I don't think in that regards, Iran is weakened. Yes, there is more popular discontent, more dissatisfaction, 
But at the same time, the repressive capabilities of the regime has intense increased substantially and the opposition inside Iran and perhaps in some ways outside of Iran is unorganized, is divided and has not been able to present a unified leadership and a vision. When we had the revolution exactly 42 years ago, right or wrong, there was a leader. Right or wrong, most political organizations and most political parties accepted the leadership of Ayatollah Khomeini. Right or wrong, they all fought for one goal, to get rid of the Shah. Now, today, we don't have that unity of the opposition. We don't have a, uh, a clear uh, message by the opposition. And finally, the last point I want to make, there is a fundamental difference between 1979 uh, uh, when we had the revolution, 1989 when Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, Khomeini died and today. And the difference is that in those years, in those uh, historical moments, we did not have the experience of Iraq being invaded by the US. We did not have the experience of Afghanistan being invaded by the US. We did not have the experience of the civil war in Syria. We did not have the experience of the Libyan civil war and the catastrophe in Libya and elsewhere. And therefore, if you are a uh, unhappy, dissatisfied Iranian middle class, you look around and when you look around, you're not gonna like what you see. And therefore, you might complain a lot, but you might not be willing to take a risk, fearing that if, if we decide to overthrow the regime, our fate might not be happier than that of Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and, uh, and Libya. Well, Simbalani, you have been so generous with your time today. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've learned from you as I always do. I miss our travels in the region at Dr. Ebtisam's conference in the UAE. Thank you for joining us on On the Middle East. Thank you very much. Uh, I also, as always, enjoy your company and uh, learn from your wisdom. And uh, I cherish our friendship, my friend. Same here. We will be back after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I am glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. That was a rich conversation with Mohsen Milani, full of perspective, insight, and some optimism tempered with realism 
about the prospects for a return to U.S.-Iran diplomacy, not just regarding the Iran nuclear deal, but also in addressing many of the regional challenges, including Yemen, which is a top priority for the Biden administration, and where Dr. Milani sees perhaps our best opportunity to end what the UN has called the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. I want to thank our production team of Phil Colabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Rochlin of Two Square Media Productions and all of you for listening today. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.